pray together. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Father, I pray that you would watch over me as I speak. Father, help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak in a way that enables everyone to understand that none of us are left confused this morning. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and move amongst us and open our hearts and our eyes to hear your word. And this I ask and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Turning your Bibles to the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 1. In our text this morning, Mary isn't technically singing. She's speaking. But it is a song. This passage is tailor-made for music. There's something running underneath the current of what we celebrate as Christmas Christmas that gives our souls a song. It's, It's not just that God sent His Son that is so important and so beautiful. It's how God chose to do it. It's how God sent His Son that gives our souls a song. It's It's... The songs that we sing because we've been set free. So let me read chapter 1 beginning at verse 46. Pick up this scene there. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. There is a theme to Mary's song that reflects one of the most prevalent themes in all of Scripture. That's God's disposition towards the proud and God's disposition towards the humble, towards the lowly. So much of what we naturally believe, so much of what is instinctive to us, goes completely against the grain of how God works. That's why we have statements that we've made up that we consider almost to be Scripture or close to it. Statements like, God helps those who help themselves. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That was used often to get me to clean things. I remember that. God gives His toughest battles to His strongest soldiers. All of these statements and so many others reveal this innate belief we have that what God ultimately responds to or what God really endears or what endears God to us is our effort our willingness to work, our best. God likes the winners. God is impressed with our accomplishments. God uses the most talented. We talk like what God wants from us is just our best. And whatever that is then, even if it's not technically very good, He's satisfied with it because we tried. Because we gave it our all. 
And if we don't think what we naturally believe about ourselves is that we all have within us then this ability to be good enough for others and especially God to accept us, then at this time of year, travel up to the North Pole, ask Santa Claus who he gives his presents to, right? Little boys and girls, if your good behavior doesn't outweigh your bad behavior, Santa isn't going to come to your house this year. If you go to a store, unfortunately, you can hear parents threaten their kids with this right now, that they're being bad, because fear mixed with desire is a very powerful motivator. So you'll see some poor mom trying to drag her kid through Walmart. Do you want Santa to bring you anything this year or not? You know, you can hear those kinds of things. Or that little, what is this weird little alien man, the elf on the shelf, We've the, 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 the little kid, have you seen this? He just sits around and watches. What's wrong? Why would we bring that into our homes? And It's terrifying. Now, I, I want to be clear, there's, there's nothing wrong with having fun with Santa Claus at Christmas time. I don't think so. Or, or singing the carols, or the toys, or anything like that. All that is fine. I, we do all of that. We have a lot of fun with it in our house. But my, my, my point is this. This idea we have that salvation is really God's gift to those who do enough good, right? that God likes the best while the lowly that have nothing to offer really have no place at His table. That whole idea has to be questioned this morning in light of Mary's song. The events to this moment in Luke chapter 1 are significant for us to understand it. Uh, an angel showed up to an old priest named Zechariah, tells him that his wife Elizabeth, who is also older, is going to have a child, going to have a child. In fact, we find Elizabeth isn't just old and past childbearing age. She's been barren. She can't have children. She's never been able to. But now, God is not only about to set His plan of salvation into motion, but He's heard the prayers of this old and barren couple, and He's about to answer. They're about to have a son, a very significant son, who the text says is going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So it was the barren woman, the woman who had nothing to offer, that would give birth to John the Baptist, the very forerunner of the Messiah. A few months later in Luke chapter 1, this same angel also visits a young girl named Mary. We all know this story. And he says to her, Greetings, O favored one. Favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary wonders, as anybody would, what all of this means. Why is there an angel here? How is she favored? Right? She lives in this obscure village. She's just a lowly teenage girl. And she's a virgin. Mary was a virgin. She cannot give birth. But the Holy Spirit would come upon her, the text says, and the power of the Most High would overshadow her, and therefore she would conceive by a pure miracle. So it was the lowly virgin girl who would give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. So if we back up from this, let's look at what God is doing. He is about to create one of the, one of the greatest, the greatest apex in the course of human history. You could See your Bible that way. That's a good way to think of it. There are four major apexes in the history of mankind. Creation, fall, redemption is where we are in the text this morning, and then all things end in consummation. And he does this. He creates one of those four apexes out on the outskirts, among the barren, among the lowly, quietly and discreetly, God doesn't do this among the palace halls or among the rich or the well-known or the mighty. 
He brings this about through an old woman who has never been able to get pregnant and a young virginal teenager who should not be able to get pregnant. For, because in chapter 1 verse 37, nothing will be impossible with the Lord. That is why the story is happening this way. To show God's power. God is the hero of this story. You see that? That's the whole point. He's the Almighty One who can bring this about. He's the Almighty One that can do this, that can make these things happen. Not Elizabeth, not Zechariah, not Mary, not Joseph. God. And Mary says in verse 38, All right, God, you you tell me what you need from me and we'll light this candle. No. No. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you hear her? You hear her response is, Here I am. Do what you do. That's all Mary can say. And then she lifts up this, what's called the Magnificat, her song to glorify God. Let me read it one more time to you. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Those are salvation words. And holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. God was Mary's Savior in verse 47. Mary was an amazing Woman, she was not sinless. She needed a Savior. And He looked on her humble estate. God looked on, He saw Mary's inability, right? God looked on Mary's lack of qualifications, on her obscurity, on her virginity, on her need. He looked on her weakness and He moved toward her, not away from her. And now sermons like this one have been happening all over the world for almost 2,000 years or more. We, we call her blessed by God. The mighty and holy one did great things for her. What did he do? He overshadowed her and in doing so brought about his will for her completely by his own power and with no contribution of her own other than her arms wide open acceptance of what God intended to do. He brought her into His plan of redemption. He brought her into His design. He gave her a standing beyond anything she would ever be able to come near doing for herself. This God, the God who is like this, the text says, His mercy, what you see Him doing here, things like this, His mercy is for those who fear Him. Who is God merciful to? Not those who bring their best to the table and make demands not those who work and expect to be paid. No, God's mercy is for those who stand in awe of Him for being merciful. Those who fear Him because rather than destroying them, He's forgiven them. It, it's, 
Well, we see the word fear here. This isn't terror so much as awe. The kind of awe that makes you cover your mouth and makes your lips tremble. Right? Maybe you've experienced something like this in your life. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, maybe, and you watch the water pour and pound over the side, you can hear the roar before you even get there as you're approaching in your car. And when you finally see it, it takes your breath away. It's, it's something like that. Yes, there's fear at the sheer power of what you're watching and the realization that it is so much more powerful than you are, that you're at its mercy, right? If you were to fall into it. But there's also the sense of speechless awe when you see it, at the beauty and the scope of it all. It is an amazing thing, and there are things like that all over the world. There are things like that sometimes in our own lives. If we could just reclaim a sense of awe at God's mercy. He forgives us, according to the psalmist, so that we would stand in awe, so that we would fear Him. It shouldn't happen. There shouldn't be mercy. This, this should not be happening. Salvation is a scandal. It's the immoral getting what they don't deserve and getting it for free. It's for the people who didn't pay. It's for the people who don't have the money. Right? The other night, I was shown mercy by the lady taking money at a basketball game because I didn't have any cash. <laughs> I didn't realize you had to pay. She looks at the size of my family, and she says, oh, you can go in. I remembered money the second time, but that was mercy. She showed me mercy. That's who salvation is for. The people who show up with no money. Nothing to contribute. Who don't have the goodness. Who don't have the clout. Who don't have the right kind of reputation. Those that know what God should do to them. Who know deep down inside what they deserve. Who know what they don't deserve. They are the recipients of God's mercy. And the text says they're the recipients of God's mercy from generation to generation in verse 50. God has always been like this. If you look down through biblical history, it's what another pastor... Matt Chandler calls a who's who of who's that. The humble have always had a song. God has always been for them. Mary's words here are beautiful, but they aren't isolated new words, really. Her song sounds very much like another woman named Hannah, who lifted up her voice back, much like Mary did back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She had a husband named Elkanah, and he had two wives, her and a woman named Peninnah. And Peninnah could have children, and Hannah could not. And Peninnah ridiculed her constantly for it. The, the have ridiculed the have not. But she cried out of her weakness. Hannah cried out of her weakness to the Lord and He provided a child for her. She recognized God's action on her behalf. She recognized Him doing that as His mercy. She knew she had nothing to give Him to cause Him to help her. She had nothing to bring. She had nothing to contribute. And when He does this, that she responds in the exact same way. She says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. All through the Bible, those whom God has come near to help have been praising Him. And every single time, in my recollection, they seem to be the least likely candidates. Hannah, Moses... Right? 
Somebody is going to go to Pharaoh and tell this great kingdom, let my people go, Moses. It's you. And who is Moses? What He's a murderer, and he stutters, probably, when he says he's slow of speech. When you pick a mouthpiece, you don't pick the guy that stutters. You try to be nice to him. You know, we... There's nothing you can do. If he stutters, he can't talk, right? He's not qualified. He doesn't have the natural abilities. And he's the one that God sends. Because what does God say when he keeps saying, I can't do it? Who made man's mouth? Who made him blind or seeing or or deaf? Who, Who did this? Was it not I? Go. I will be with you. I will be with you. David wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the tallest wasn't the strongest son of Jesse. He wasn't the king that the people would have picked. They had their king. Tall, good-looking, better hunter, warrior than everybody else. David's out in the field playing a harp. Right? No offense, Kathy, about the harp. <laughs> but <laughs> when you go <laughs> when you go looking for kings, you're not like, who plays the harp? That's not it's beautiful for this, but not for being a warrior king. It's, the images don't match up. And did you bring all your sons, the prophet says, and oh, there's the one that plays the harp out in the field, you know, and that's God's king. Right? There's, there's just these little whispers. That's why he comes to the outskirts. Like, that's why it happens this way. That's why God comes to the barren. That's why God comes to the virgin. He has established a pattern. He's declaring us to us once again, only now in this moment, louder than ever, that salvation will not come to those who think they deserve it. It will come to those who know they don't. Who aren't even thinking about it. It's so far out of their minds. God's strength in Mary's song has not been used to abuse the poor and lowly. God's arm has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts and brought down the mighty from their thrones. Notice God's disposition towards the proud in this text, as well as we notice His disposition to the poor. He leaves the proud to their own delusions of grandeur, right? While exalting those of humble estate. Notice what He says here. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. That's active on God's part. God's acceptance of us is not based on what we're able to bring. In fact, if you come to God with your hands full, you'll leave with your stuff, but He will have given you nothing. He'll send us away empty. But if we own, if we just own our hunger, own our need, if we're realistic before God about our utter bankruptcy, He fills us, and not just with things, with good things. Have you ever been so hungry and you eat and it isn't satisfying at all? Right? Is there any more frustrating feeling than hunger when you're full? That is the rich before God. And, and it's not primarily, ultimately, a statement about material wealth. It's, it's not that it's automatically a sin to be rich. Although there is a correlation between our ability to gather wealth and our opinion of our own potential. It is there to come to God for His congratulations on what we bring is to be rejected by Him. It's to be rejected by Him. It doesn't matter what we bring to the table. If we think it gets God to approve of us, 
He'll let us keep it, but we'll go away empty. He won't give us anything. It's the hungry that God fills with good things. Every time we can't accept charity, whether it's a check or maybe even just a meal, when we can't do that, and I can't do I don't like to do it either. So I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about us. But every time we feel that aversion to charity, we feel that aversion to someone's free gift to us, we are demonstrating what is inside of us innately. That in our nature, we do not want to look hungry. We don't want to receive gifts. We don't want people thinking we didn't contribute. We don't like it. We don't like the way it makes us feel. We don't like the way it makes us look We want to contribute something. Something. Just let me give a little bit so that I don't feel so helpless and like I didn't give anything. Oh, beloved, I know it's natural and we all do this, but let's get under that. Where does that come from? It comes from the garden. It comes from sin. So the greatest gift The greatest gift in the history of mankind, God's salvation, is meeting the greatest aversion to charity in human history when He comes to us. When God consistently moves to exalt those of humble estate, when He consistently moves to send the rich away empty, God is narrowing the road, beloved. He's saying something. God didn't choose and help the mightiest nation on the earth either, did He? Or the greatest. The one with the most wealth or the greatest army. No, God helped His servant, Israel, in remembrance of His mercy. That's what He's doing here. God sent Israel her Messiah because He is merciful to them. The smallest nation surrounded by enemies, maligned in the world, in and out of exile by Mary's time. But God hadn't chosen them because of what they brought to the table. In fact, there's a beautiful text in Deuteronomy where we find the reason for God's love for Israel. Do you know why God loved Israel? Because He loved them. That's what the text says. He chose them because actually they were like a helpless little baby, abandoned and wallowing about to die in a barren field, Ezekiel said. This is the promise He made to the fathers right here. His mercy has always been at the core of His motivation for getting involved with us. Mercy. Pure mercy. This is the promise He made to Abraham and his offspring forever. I will bless every nation in the world through you. And what Mary is recognizing by God's revelation is that the birth of this child is going to bring about the fulfillment of that promise ultimately. And so the fulfillment of the promise retained the spirit of the promise. Grace. Mercy. God brings the Messiah through a virgin girl and obscurity. Beloved, God wouldn't even let the baby be conceived naturally. Just so none of us would ever think, well, you have to do something. Right? We, I mean, you... you you have to take, you want to be able to take credit for a little bit, right? Just a little bit, just a smidge. You know, it took Mary and Joseph, it took their will, it, no, it didn't. It took God overshadowing a virgin girl for the Messiah to be born. 
That's instructive, beloved. It's not just amazing and beautiful, although it is. But God doesn't do anything like, eh. Right? No, if the Holy Spirit doesn't come and work a miracle, if God's power doesn't overshadow us, there is no salvation. Right? There, there is no salvation if there isn't a virgin birth. And we can't pull that off. That's how poor we really are. That's what God is saying to us. We all can sing this song. All we can do is receive. All we can do is just take the gift. That's it. All we can do is spread our arms and say with this young woman, all right, let it be to me according to your word. If you said you're going to do it, I trust you. Right? You think about that as you, God calls you to himself in salvation and you look at the record you brought. All, what, what else can you say? But, okay, if you say you'll save me, then save me. If you can look past this, if you can forgive this, then take me. Right? That's all there is. That's all there is. A recognition of what is painfully obvious. We need to be careful this morning, though, lest we think that what we're after here is the virtue of humility. Right? As though the performance of humility is what draws God near to us. That would be oxymoronic at best. Beloved, we're not trying to be humble enough to get God to save us. It's not the goal. Do we understand how bankrupt we really are? How hungry we really are? This this humility is not something we work really hard to perform because then what could you say? God, look at my humility. Look at how humble I am. I won most humble, but I'm wearing the badge that says I won most humble. Right? So you weren't really humble. And most of the time, humility is a sham. We want to look humble. We don't want to actually be humble. We just want to make other people think we're humble. This is real humility. This is real humility. Which is the recognition of my own brokenness. It's the knowledge that I don't deserve salvation. Humility, beloved, is how our soul agrees with God that we need a Savior. That is humility. If anything is modeled for us in the examples of the humble in Scripture, it's mainly the posture that says, God is my only hope. Nobody that worked to become like that would say God is their only hope and mean it. God is my only hope, and then the 3% that I did, that's my only hope. Technically. It's almost like humility is a miracle. If it's there at all. It's like, you know, if there was like a young woman or something, just minding her own business, and an angel from the Lord just appeared to her and tells her that she's going to become pregnant without ever having been with a man. It's kind of like that. If that has happened anywhere. It's almost like salvation depends on God just showing up and saying to you, I'm going to do this. And you say, I don't know how, but it's you, so do it. This morning as we close here, in just a few moments, we consider this. You don't need... The how has been made clear. But you don't need to understand it completely because 
You really can't. The virgin birth is an amazing thing. The cross is even more amazing that that happened. We're, one of the reasons we gather as a church and sing is because we can never figure out completely why He chose to love us and save us. That's what gives us a song. So don't think that you have to become spiritually able this morning to understand why God would do all these things. You just need to know that He did it. And it's yours for the taking. Believe it. And as time goes on, He'll just let you mine the depths of it more and more. And the more you discover about it, the more amazed at Him you'll become. Because the closer you get to God, the more accurately you see yourself. And you start to realize, I thought I was bad when He saved me. I didn't know I was this messed up. It's one of the beautiful things about salvation is you just keep finding out that you need it. It never goes away. Beloved, the poor represent physically what we all are spiritually. That's why they're there, I think, in one sense. God, Because God saves both materially rich and poor people. He saves both. He saves both physically popular and strong people, as well as obscure and weak people. He is the Savior of all. The poverty that draws God near to us is not on the outside. It's not on, not ultimately on the outside. Those are symptoms, not source. It is the realization that no matter what we have, no matter what we don't, no matter what we can, no matter what we cannot do, our souls, unless God does a miracle, are spiritually bankrupt, hopeless, far from God, and condemned. And we can overcome none of those things. It is the realization of that that is poverty. In the flesh, nothing good dwells, Paul says in Romans seven eighteen. Nothing. Come away from it. You don't need to have anything. You don't, you, I get invited to a dinner. The first question I'm asking is what? What can I bring? Because God forbid that you make all the food and serve me. Right? We can't handle it. We can't. We need a miracle. Because that's what God is doing. Look, I'm going to do the whole thing. You just sit there and believe. No, 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 no. No. There's got to be more to it than that. No. There isn't. In the flesh nothing good dwells, but there's good news. Psalm 138.6 For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. But the haughty, He knows from afar. See, if, if my message this morning was to tell us to get low, I'd be assuming that we were high. None of us are high. Some of us just think we are. And therein lies the rub this morning, beloved. God has set up our world so that we would realize that. Did you know that? There's so many whispers in our lives of the fact that we were made to stand in awe. We weren't made to be the thing people are standing in awe of. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to improve their self-esteem. Right? You don't go to stare at something massive so that you can feel big. You go to stare and be in awe of amazing things because deep down inside, we were made to stand in awe. 
We go to the Grand Canyon, we watch football, we look at art, we love music, we worship what is amazing and better and worthy because we were made to be amazed. And into that desire, the desire we have to stand in awe, the desire of a poor in spirit that needs something great to behold, into that I give you the Almighty God of heaven and earth this morning bringing down the mighty from their thrones, exalting those of humble estate, right? Bypassing all the pomp and glory of the world to come close to those with nothing to offer, to those out on the fringes. The person seated here this morning saying, that's all very nice, there's no way it's for me. Oh, it's been tailor-made for you. It's been tailor-made for you that have nothing. bringing down the mighty, exalting those of humble estate. See, here's the secret. That's what we all are. That's what we all are. Jesus comes right behind Santa, so to speak, stopping at all the houses that Santa passed over where the bad boys and girls live. And he comes with his own bag of gifts this morning made specifically for the hungry, for those who have no clean record to offer up to the king. He's the savior of the broken, the humble, the lowly. That record you think is keeping you away is the record that brings you before him to save. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap. This is what he does. It's what he's always done. The ones covered in the soot and ash of their own spiritual poverty and bankruptcy. He is the Savior who exalts the humble. Come to him. Accept his eternal charity. For he comes bearing gifts this morning, beloved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth that has been revealed to us in this text, this text that we tend to focus on at Christmas, which is fine. But Father, I pray that we not lose sight of the how and the why as we celebrate the what. And Father, I pray for everyone in here, in your divine mercy, to feel their need this morning. To rejoice if you've met it. To come so that you can. Wherever each one is, Father, bring them once more to the feet of Jesus or for the first time. I thank you so much for what you've made clear to us in your word. What you've made clear to the hungry. These things I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.